Thanks for listening to the Granary Church Podcast. For more information, head to granary.org.au or follow us on social media at The Granary Church. So we're using the tables to our advantage. What we believe God's talking to us about for this new challenge um, needs tables. And we've got tables and this is this is great. So um, we have just finished a challenge on spiritual warfare. As I said before, that doesn't mean we've finished spiritual warfare. It means we're starting it because we're feeling ready to get going. And uh, this is what we're doing now is part of spiritual warfare, but it feels so much different to what we imagine spiritual warfare is. This challenge is actually called eating and drinking together, which is what you're doing this morning. And next week we're going to say, why don't you bring something along to share that you could eat and drink together in a COVID safe manner. You can work that out, how to do that. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much. You've gathered gathered us here today. Apprentices of Jesus or future apprentices of Jesus. Whoever we are today, Lord, may we really hear your Holy Spirit speak to us. We know your Spirit speaks to everyone. So we pray that you will enable us to be really tuned in to you this morning so we won't miss it. Thank you for the privilege of being able to communicate with our Father, the one who created the heavens and the earth, that we can sit here on a Sunday morning in this building in Steel River and your Holy Spirit can speak personally to us. May we hear it. May we get it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Right, so um, in Luke, when Jesus got up, the start of his ministry, just just before this, just to give you a little bit of context, Jesus has been baptised, the Holy Spirit has descended upon him. The voice of the Father from heaven says, this is my beloved Son. And then he is tempted, he goes to the wilderness where he's tempted by the enemy. And in that time, um, he's tempted, but he never sins. He uses the word of God to fight the spiritual battle that he is encountering. It's like, Now he's ready to go and he's ready to go and he comes into the temple and he picks up this scroll and he actually reads from the prophet Isaiah and he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Just to qualify, poor they may mean poor in um, resources, but it may mean poor in spirit, poor in hope, just poor. You can actually be rich and poor at the same time. So poor is, is multifaceted. So I want to read this again because Jesus came and this was the beginning of his ministry. He's saying, this is, this is what I'm about to do. Now at the end of the Gospels, he commissions us to do the same. So let's translate this now to us because we can look at Jesus and say that's just what Jesus does. But we are apprentices of Jesus. Here we are today. And if you're here today and you're still discovering who Jesus is, it's good to know from the start that he's calling you to be his apprentice. He's calling you to follow him and to make this, to bring his good news into the world. And you are well able to do it because he fills us with his spirit. As it says here, it's the first thing he says. And can you say this about yourself today? The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Say that out loud. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. It's a a declaration to make because when you say it, you realise, wow, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. And then it says, because he has anointed me. I want you to say that. Because he has anointed me. So consider yourself today as a person on whom the Spirit of God rests, who is anointed. You 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 are set apart. for this good work that he's called you to do. And it's this, 
to proclaim good news to the poor. You, the Spirit of the Lord is upon you because you have been anointed to proclaim good news to the poor. The Spirit of the Lord is upon you because you have been anointed in his name to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. The Spirit of the Lord is upon you because you have been anointed to reco- for the recovery of sight for the blind, which is not just the physical blind, but the spiritually blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. So how are you do- going with that? How are you going with that? You know, the interesting thing about the early church is that the early church spread very, very quickly. It started off with this little band of people in Palestine it started off as a, a group of followers of Jesus who were persecuted, who nobody wanted to have anything to do with. Their, their um, religion was illegal. They were thrown to lions. They were imprisoned. They were beaten and flogged and mocked. They were um, not, when they started off, they were regarded as a very unusual group of, of people. It was 120 of them in an upper room on the day of Pentecost when the when the Holy Spirit fell and they began doing this. They began doing what they were called to do, 120 people out of the entire world. And yet by around 300 uh, AD when the Emperor Constantine was overseeing the Roman Empire, he made Christianity the official religion. And some say it was a political move more than anything else because there were so many Christians in the Roman Empire 300 years later. So you start off with 120 people and it spread in 300 years without the internet, without the printing press, without a phone, without a television, without a radio, without Australia Post. Like there was, if you if you read um in the Book of Esther. I, I love reading the start of the Book of Esther. How the king gets his message out. It says that he sent messages out on very fast horses around his empire. So that was one of the ways they did it. Very fast horses. That qualifies that. Not just any old horse. Very fast ones. And it still would have taken quite a long time to get the message out on a very fast horse. So even if you want to get a message from today to Melbourne, we, which is pretty isolated, um, and you sent a very fast horse. Still going to take a long time to get there, that very fast horse. But it spread rapidly. And how how did they do that? Justin Martyr, who was an early Christian theologian, wrote to the emperor Ant- Antonius Pius and described the believers. This is right in the very early days of Christianity. We formerly rejoiced in uncleanness of life, but now love only chastity. Before we used the magic arts, but now dedicate ourselves to the true and unbegotten God. Before, we loved money and possessions more than anything. But now we share what we have and to everyone who is in need. Before, we hated one another and killed one another and would not eat with those of another race. But now, since the manifestation of Christ, we have come to a common life and pray for our enemies and try to win over those who hate us without just cause. And so they say that in the early days of the church, the gospel spread from home to home and from table to table, that it was actually done primarily through hospitality. In those first 300 years, you know of the Apostle Paul, who's famous for spreading the gospel, gospel. and after that, for the next 300 years, you, there's, no, there's not many names. What names do you know from those, from those years? Even those of you who have read a lot of theology, what names are famous? We don't have the names of, of the Wesleys or, or the people that we know from this age. Who were the people? Well, they were just people like you and me who were 
hospitable. And this word hospitality actually started with the Christians. It was the Christians who started hospitals. And just to get your, your mind around what this is, just to remove your mind just from a medical facility, hospitality, the Greek word literally means the love of a guest, the love of a guest. Hospitality is expressing the welcome of God the Father to all through the tangible acts, through tangible acts of love, ideally through giving food, shelter and relationship. The word hospital originates from Latin hospes, meaning guest or stranger. It's the root of words such as hospice, hostel, hotel and hospitality. The word patient comes from patio, which is to suffer. Hence, a hospital can be interpreted etymologically as a place where strangers who suffer come to be cared for. And who are the people who are suffering? Well, it could be you here today. Many of us who know Jesus still suffer, but we know who to go to. Who are the people who are lost? It could be you here today. Just want to work on that word lost for a, for a moment. Um, sometimes when we say Jesus did say he came to seek and save the lost and we don't like to use that word lost because when we use the word lost we often think it's uh, like a, a sin hierarchy, like I'm good because I'm not lost and you're bad because you are lost. But just um, earlier this year I was going up to the Hunter Valley. I had to meet Graham, my husband, up there for a function. He was already up there during the day and I'm driving up the Hunter Expressway on my phone on Bluetooth and uh, and I, I knew the place I had to go to so I thought I'll be fine. And um, But because I'm in, in this phone call, I missed my turn-off and so I took another turn-off later on down the expressway and um, but I was lost. And so I had to say to the person, I'm actually going to have to hang up, I'm sorry, and I'm going to have to call on a higher authority to help me find where I'm going. So I hung up and I called on Siri and uh, she helped me find where I was meant to be going. But as I pulled over to get onto my GPS um, to link up with a satellite to help me know where to go, I wasn't any better or worse than all the people who were still driving along the street past me. I was just lost. The lost is not a moral statement. Lost is a condition of life where everyone in our heart longs and yearns for something. We don't know how to find it or how to get there and so we're lost. And those of us who have experienced the love of the Father know that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil because he is with us and we, and we know that his goodness and mercy are with us and pursuing us all the days of our life because we've been found. It doesn't mean we've done anything better than anyone else. It's just that somehow someone shared the love of the Father with us and we discovered the love of the Father and we're found. And we know where we're going and we know why we're going and we know how we're going to get there. We don't know exactly what each step is going to look like or what it's going to look like around the turn, but we know we have a higher calling. We know we're dearly loved. We know we're created for a purpose. We know that we have been redeemed and justified. Our sins have been washed away and we can live in the presence of God now and forever. We are found. Found. Found is not a moral statement. Neither is lost. It's a condition of heart and a condition of life. And we're called to be like Jesus who, come to, who came to seek and to save the lost. We're called to do that. And the early church did it through hospitality. They did it in many other ways, but particularly through hospitality. The early church was known for its kindness and its compassion, that no one amongst, amongst them were, were poor. People had everything that they needed. They stood out because they were so different to the rest of society. And Jesus came and did this. If you look at the Gospels, you will see that Jesus came eating and drinking most of the time when he is sharing good news, food and drink are involved in some way. It can be out on the hillside with 5,000 people and he feeds them or it can be in someone's home and he feeds them. 
It's often around eating and drinking. In fact, his very first miracle was performed at a wedding where people were eating and drinking. And it's because there's something special about the table. Even research shows that um, families who gather around the table at least five times a week for meals, their children are healthier and happier. They do better at school. There's amazing research into the results of people who actually eat around a table. There's something about a table that um, provides a, a sense of intimacy and belonging. There's something about sharing food on a table that shows our dependence upon God and on one another. Because without God, we don't have food and we need not one another to create it and to produce it. There's something about a table that is serving. Someone serves at a table. Someone prepares. Someone cooks. Someone does something and there's been a lot of serving on the way to get to the table. So all through our history in every culture, the table is incredibly important. And Jesus used that table, but he used it in a very really subversive way to the culture in which he was, uh, he was, he was in. So we'll listen to this story. From um, Luke 19, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be a guest of a sinner. Now Jesus actually ended up being crucified because of the sorts of people he ate and drank with. It's an interesting thing because this is what they're grumbling about most of all. Because you see, generally in, um, in when we eat and drink with people, we like to choose the people who either make us feel good or make us look good. Or sometimes it's to be kind, but Jesus is actually choosing a despised person. Someone is really despised because the tax collector is a Jewish person who works for the invading Roman army. And so he is allowed to, um, he collects taxes on behalf of the Romans, but he is allowed to add a tax that he can take himself. So he may, charge, he may take 50% from people's income and his wealth is from his own people. So he is a betrayer. He's a traitor. He is despised. He's very, very wealthy. His poverty doesn't come from um, having not enough money. He has plenty of money. And yet he's not a Roman and the Jews hate him. And there is Jesus with a whole crowd of people who he could choose to let everyone would think, well, Jesus is amazing. I want him to come to my house. And he chooses the scum, basically, or how everyone else saw him. Jesus could see him with different eyes. But everyone else saw him as the scum. Who is the scum for you? No one answers that question. But if you think about it, there are people that um, you think you may not call anyone scum, but there are people that you would not want to be seen with or to think that people think you like them or that you might have the same philosophy as them. Maybe they have a totally different philosophy to you. Maybe you avoid them. There are people in our world that we really avoid. Maybe there's people who hate you. Maybe there's people that you would not give you the best reputation if you hung out with them. They might think you're a Christian and you're hanging out with X. There's a story, and I'll give you a quote from this lady later. Her name is Rosaria Butterfield, and she was a very left-wing, anti-Christian feminist doing a PhD on basically why Christians are a menace to society. And uh, she wrote an article in a New York paper about there was a men's conference, Christian men's conference coming up and she wrote the article and really 
trashed the whole thing. And one of the ministers, one of the pastors, wrote a really kind letter to her and asked her for dinner. And uh, she was doing this PhD on why Christians are a menace. So she thought, oh, well, a bit of research probably wouldn't hurt. And, and she said as she's, drive, as she's pulling into his driveway, she's thinking, why am I doing this? Why am I fraternising with the enemy? And he was, she was invited into his home with his family. No one talked about God. They just loved her. And she had a fa- fabulous night. And they invited her back. And she went back. And she had another fabulous night. And they kept doing this till eventually she started asking them more about who they were because what they were revealing to her first was the love of Jesus enough to make her hungry, to know what is it in your hearts that I'm your enemy and why do you love me like this? The end of the story is that um, she's now a follower of Jesus. She's a Christian author and a Christian speaker and, um, and she's written a book about hospitality, how it can actually transform a person's life. And that's what Jesus is doing here. But you notice it says there that all the people saw this and began to mutter or they began to grumble or they began to gossip about him. And as we know, that didn't go well for Jesus because people gradually turned against him because of this. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him today, Salvation has come to this house because this man too is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. And Zacchaeus' life changes. Because Zacchaeus was a marginalised person. And he may have been marginalised because of his own actions. Some of us are marginalised because of our own actions. But he was still a marginalised person. And Jesus doesn't look and say, well, you're marginalised because you did this, so therefore it's your fault, so enjoy being marginalised for the rest of your life. He doesn't judge and blame. He comes to seek and save the lost. There are some who are marginalised by others' actions. There's some who are marginalised just by the way they look or the socioeconomic aspect of society into which they've been born. And there's some who are marginalised by their own actions. But Jesus doesn't look and regard, he doesn't explain why they were there and give them a little lecture. He doesn't say, Zacchaeus, you wouldn't have been on the outside if you'd been kinder and you hadn't taken on this job with the Ramans. You don't see that. When Peter betrays Jesus um, and Jesus rises from the dead and they're having um, a meal together again, Jesus asked um, Peter to feed his sheep, but he doesn't say, I want to ask you to feed my sheep, but before I do that, I want you to sit down and tell me that you get what you did wrong and you're going to change. He just embraces people. People and all of us at some time in our life have been marginalised or marginalised ourselves. And Jesus is asking us to be the hands and feet of him to draw them back in, just like he did to Zacchaeus. Now, how Zacchaeus changed, it doesn't explain it there. Why why Zacchaeus had this change of heart, it doesn't explain it there. And I really believe one of the reasons it doesn't is because we would create a formula for it, from it. We would invite the Zacchaeuses into our home with the formula of what you now need to do. And Jesus doesn't do that because there's the Holy Spirit is doing something profound in that man's life. And the Spirit of the Lord is upon you and you don't have to have all the answers. The Spirit of the Lord will move in you and through you. But we need to come with this hospitable love that Jesus showed to people. Tim Chester wrote a book called Everyday Church Gospel Communities on Mission. And he says he said in an interview, Roman meals express the social order. Jewish meals were similar with the added twist that Levitical food laws made it all but impossible for Jews to eat with Gentiles. So meals expressed who were the insiders and who were the outsiders. Jesus turns all this upside down, or perhaps I should say inside out. 
outsiders became insiders around the table with Jesus. In his book, um, Everyday Church, Gospel Communities on Mission, Tim Chester says, the Christian community demonstrates the effectiveness of the gospel. We are the living proof that the gospel is not an empty word but a powerful word that takes men and women who are lovers of self and transforms them by grace through the Spirit into people who love God and others. We are the living proof that the death of Jesus was not just a vain expression of God's love but an effective death that achieved the salvation of a people who now love one another sincerely from a pure heart. He describes Jesus' mission and his method. In Luke 19, it says, For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's his mission, came to seek and save the lost. But his method, he says, is in Luke 7. The Son of Man, Jesus says this, The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But Jesus says, but wisdom is proved right by all her children. You see, he, did, he was called a, a glutton and a drunkard. And he wasn't a glutton and a drunkard. But they called him a glutton and a drunkard because he hung out with people who were gluttons and drunkards and transformed their life. And there is a risk that happens when you do that because he was sitting around people's tables So in another meal, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. So Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and sat at the table. A sinful woman in the town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. A sinful woman is most likely a prostitute. And in those days, the tax collectors and the prostitutes were the lowest of society. So she brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind Jesus at his feet crying She began to wash his feet with her tears and she dried them with her hair, kissing them many times and rubbing them with the perfume. When the Pharisee who asked Jesus to come to his house saw this, he thought to himself, if Jesus were a prophet, he would know that the woman touching him is a sinner. Big mistake. You think you're thinking it and Jesus can't hear. And he can hear. And Jesus said to the Pharisee, Simon, I have something to say to you. Judgment isn't just with our lips, you know, judgment's in our hearts, in our minds and it causes the way we behave unless we grab those thoughts and take them captive. And he's, he's evaluating Jesus. He's evaluating who Jesus is by the way he treats this woman. And in his worldview, he would not be a great follower of God if unless he pushes that woman out of the room. Because in his mind, someone who really follows God seriously will have nothing to do with someone who's a sinner. They have to go. We don't want them because maybe they will mess us up. But Jesus said, Simon, and in Jesus' general fashion, he says, I have something to say to you. And he tells him a story. And Simon says, teacher, tell me. I wonder what Simon was hoping for then. A little story that might prove that he was right. And Jesus said two people owed money to the same banker. One owned 500 coins and the other owed 50. They say that uh, the 50 is probably about two months' wages and the 500 is probably about two years' wages. In both cases, there are significant amounts of money. But the two years' wages is a lot of money. Just think about how much money you earn in a year and times it by two, there's the debt. They had no money to pay what they owed, but the banker told both of them they did not have to pay him. Which person will love the banker more? Simon the Pharisee answered, I think it would be the one who owed him the most. Jesus said, you are right. Very clever. Then Jesus turned to the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? 
When I came into your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she washed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss of greeting, but she has been kissing my feet since I came in. You did not put oil on my head, and she poured perfume on my feet. What he's saying to the shock of this man who's invited Jesus in his home that he hasn't served him and treated him with great hospitality. Simon, who thought he was the hero of the story, becomes the enemy and the woman who came in as the enemy becomes the hero of the story. She's the bottom of the bottom. Firstly, she's a woman, which goes against you, and she's a prostitute, which goes against her, and her hair is out, which also goes against her. And she's sitting in a room of men, which also goes against her. And yet she is shown grace and love and her sins are forgiven. And Jesus said, I tell you that her many sins are forgiven. So she showed great love, which translates for us that the love that we show to other people will be an indication of how much we understand the grace that has been given to us. The love that we show is an indication of the grace that has been given to us. I tell you that her many sins are forgiven, so she showed great love. But the person who was forgiven only a little will love only a little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The people sitting at the table began to say amongst themselves, a bit more gossip going on here, who is this who even forgives sins? So Rosaria Butterfield said this, and here is the edge. Christians are called to live in the world but not to live like the world. Christians are called to dine with sinners but not sin with sinners. But either way, when Christians throw their lot in with Jesus, we lose the right to protect our own reputation. Your reputation is an interesting thing. Your reputation is something that you want to build up to make sure people see you in a particular way. But Jesus came not worried about his reputation because he knew who he was. He knew he was the dearly loved son of the father as we hear at his baptism when the Holy Spirit fell upon him. The voice of the father saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He knew that. He knew who he was. He knew his mission. I've come to seek and save the lost. He knew his future. It says in Philippians 2 that for the joy set before him, he was able to humble himself and not grab equality with God even though he could do that. He knew who he was, he knew why he was here and he knew where he was going. And so what others thought of him was immaterial to him. And when they crucified him, he didn't need to say, but hang on, I am the son of God and just you watch because you're all going to go to hell. He didn't say that. And some of us would like to say, just to let them know you got it all wrong. He loves them when he's dying on the cross and he loves them when he's raised from the dead. And through that, he transformed the world and took a little band of people, 120 in that upper room, and in 300 years the entire Roman Empire was, had changed its official religion to Christianity because of people who went from home to home and from table to table and showed the genuine love of Jesus, not in a pyramid-selling way where you've had the first course and the pamphlet comes out, nothing like that. It might be 20 meals before they ask you a question. But when they ask you a question, your story is ready that the grace and the love of God have filled you and transformed your life. And you can testify. We're called to be witnesses and to testify, and we testify from our own personal experience. We know the scriptures and we know what they say, and they line up with our personal experience, and we share that with other people. And people are actually hungry to know this. I was at the hairdressers recently, and I was reading Pete Gregg, who, who's the 24-7 prayer guy. He's got a book out called um, Prayer for Normal People, something like that. Does anyone know the name? A Simple Guide Prayer, How to Pray, A Simple Guide for Normal People. That's what it's called. 
So I was sitting there reading it and then she came over to do my hair and I put it down and uh, she could see it because bright red cover. And after a time she said, do you like reading? I said, no, I love reading. Is that a good book? I said, it's a great book actually. And his intro is, is so, so good because he talks about, he brings in all religions and atheists and he says in every human being, even atheists, is a time when people pray. And I said that to her. I said because he says to pray is to be human because everyone wants to know that there is someone who cares, who is stronger than you, who can be there in the hard times of life. She said, that's true. So I'm ready for my next hair appointment. And um, step by step, because there is a hunger in people. Rosaria Butterfield says, our post-Christian neighbours need to hear and see our taste and feel authentic Christianity, hospitality spreading from every Christian home that includes neighbours in prayer, food, friendship, childcare, dog walking and all the daily matters upon which friendships are built. Radically ordinary hospitality is this, using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers neighbours and neighbours family of God. There is a risk in all of this, and this is what our challenge is, to start off this week thinking, who could you invite over? Who cannot or may never return the favour? You just do it just to love them. Maybe they are going through a hard time. Maybe they are marginalised in some way. Maybe they are living a life that is totally opposite to the life that you live. Maybe they vote for someone in America that you don't vote for. Maybe they like our premier or dislike our premier. People divide even on that. Would you have them at your table? Maybe they've done things that you would never have done, but you've done something else. Would you have them to your table and just love them? Jesus says in Luke 14, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And he said in verse 33, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Part of it might be your reputation, your home, your time. And by the way, hospitality is not the same as entertaining. Entertaining means you've got to have it all, you've got to be master chef, you've got to have all the right crockery and cutlery, you've got to know which side the butter plate goes on. I do know that actually, my kids don't, that frustrates me. <laughs> you've got to know all these things, but hospitality is not that. Hospitality is just whatever you have. Can you cook up a bowl of pasta? You don't have to have the perfect home. You don't have to have a big home. If you don't have a home, you can, like as um, the Pilly family did for us recently, they arrived at our place with all the food and we sat down in the lounge room and they used our kitchen and they cooked our dinner and they served us at our table. It's another way of hospitality. There's cafes, there's restaurants, there's times for coffee, there's a river cafe. There's so many ways that if you think about it that you can be hospitable to someone else. And there's something valuable about inviting someone to sit around your table. As I, as I read recently, not just to do something for people which makes them feel that you are, you, they always need your help, but to do something with people and to do life together, to let them know that you value them as someone equal to you. So to finish off, I'd just like us to consider another meal that Jesus shared and it was the Last Supper. And there's something amazing about the Last Supper. Firstly, Jesus served. He took the role of the servant. And he washed his disciples' feet, which is the, what the lowest servant does. And he served them all. And just consider for a moment who was sitting around that table. There was Judas who was about to betray him and did betray him. And it ended up with Jesus hanging on the cross and dying. And he served Judas as his friend. 
and his equal. There was Peter who just the night before had said, Lord, I will never deny you. In fact, I would die for you. But just the next day he denies him. There was John who sat at the foot of the cross with Mary, the mother of Jesus, until Jesus died and then took Mary home to be his mother. They're all there. They're all around the table together. I think sometimes we don't like the fact that when we get to heaven, those around the table might be very different to us. And so Jesus is saying now, will you have around the table and serve equally those who love you, those who betray you. You do this because this is how the gospel spreads from house to house, from family to family and changes a nation and changes the world. So I just want to ask the worship team to come up and I'm going to give us time just to think and pray. You can do this however you like around your tables. Our tables are really important just to... Take some silence and let the Holy Spirit speak to you and say and ask the Lord, who could I be hospitable to this week? And if you can't fit it in this week because it's too rushed, who could I contact and plan to be hospitable to this week? Because once you've got it in your diary, you're on the road to doing something different. It doesn't have to be 100 people. It might be one person. Who could it be? Because we're called to lay down our lives. And there are people who just need the love of Jesus that is in you and you are his apprentice. You are his disciple. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your incredible love for us, that you invite us to your table. Psalm 23 says, you prepare a table for us in the presence of our enemies. There is an enemy who stands before you accusing us day and night and you prepare a banqueting table for us and we are allowed to sit and feast with you. Despite our sin, our shame and our brokenness and everything, we sit at your table every day. Father, I pray you'll speak to us. Who do you want us to invite to our tables? In Jesus' name, amen.